is chicle and la basura. Chicle and la basura. And the reason I remember that phrase more than any other phrase is because every single day when we would walk into class, our teacher would look at us and point to the garbage and say, chicle and la basura. She would not tolerate us chewing gum in her class. So every single day, she would remind us of this. When a teacher or a parent or any kind of instructor wants to impress something upon their students or their children, they will repeat a phrase or will repeat a theme over and over and over again. And they do so so that those who are learning will take it to heart, will hear it, will remember it, and will apply it to their hearts and lives. Well, we are in the middle of a sermon series going through the Gospel of Mark. And one of the things we see in the Gospel of Mark is the repetition of certain themes. And when a particular theme is repeated, it is good for us to recognize that this theme is an important point of emphasis. In other words, when a theme is repeated, we should understand that the Lord is trying to impress something important on us. We need to remember that the Bible is very interesting, but it is not merely interesting. The Bible is historical, but it is not merely historical. No, the Bible is the living and active word of God, which the Holy Spirit uses to change us and transform us into the image of Jesus. Therefore, when we study the Bible, we ought to expect that the Lord is working to accomplish something in us. When we study the word, the Lord is trying to get something done in us us. And when we see the repetition of a particular theme, we need to recognize that the Lord expects us to, one, think carefully about what is being taught, and two, work diligently to apply it to our lives. The theme that is repeated in our text this morning is the theme of servitude and humility in the life of a disciple. And it's not a coincidence that we see this theme come up three times in chapters 8 through 10, each time immediately following a prediction by Jesus of his death and resurrection. In chapter 8, Jesus foretold of his death and resurrection for the first time. And shortly thereafter, he told his disciples that they needed to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. In chapter 9, he foretold of his death and resurrection a second time. Immediately after, the disciples argued amongst themselves about who is the greatest. And so Jesus told them that you need to be humble. You need to humble yourselves and become a servant of all. And here in our passage in chapter 10 today, Jesus foretold of his death and resurrection for the third time, and we see that he emphasized this need for his followers to be humble servants once again. So I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 10 verses 32 through 45. That's Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. 
And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they, were, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus and the disciples continued their journey, and for the first time, Mark revealed their destination. Jesus was leading his disciples to Jerusalem, and in our passage, they drew near to the city. Mark said they were on the road going up to, to the city, which makes sense because Jerusalem was just 20 miles from Jericho, but was 3,500 feet higher in elevation. And so when Mark described them as going up to Jerusalem, it was a geographically accurate phrase. But despite the strenuous hike up to Jerusalem and despite the opposition that awaited him there, Jesus led the way. And this gives us a picture of his leadership. He led the way to Jerusalem where he knew he was going to suffer and die. He led the way in order to serve the people who followed him. As they were going, Jesus pulled the twelve aside and for the third time told them what was going to transpire once they reached Jerusalem. For the third time, he predicted his death and resurrection. And he even gave more details this time. He told them how it was going to happen, what was going to happen, and how it was going to happen, and who was going to be responsible. Mark doesn't tell us how the disciples reacted when Jesus told them for the third time that he was going to suffer, die, and rise again. But from what we read next, we get the impression that it did not seem to sink in. Shortly after he told them what was about to transpire, he was approached by two of his disciples, James and John, who were brothers. And they had an agenda. They said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, every time I read that, that sentence, I'm amazed. And I always think, these guys had some nerve. Who leads with that? Who leads with, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you? I can't imagine saying that to somebody. I can't imagine saying that to my wife. I want you to do for me whatever I ask of you. Or I just try to think if like, my kids approached me in that way. Imagine one of my kids came up to me and said, Dad, I want you to do for me whatever I ask of you. I would say, oh, really? You want me to agree ahead of time to do what you want me to do, what you want me, uh, what you want to me to do, what you want me to do, without having any idea what you're going to ask me? That seems like a bad idea. But that's the kind of nerve that these disciples had. They come to Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We want you to agree right now to say yes to our request. 
which maybe gives some idea that they, they maybe had an idea that what they were asking wasn't cool, right? Because they're asking him ahead of time, just, just, just say yes. Say yes. Are you going to say yes? Jesus could have responded in a number of ways. He could have come down hard on him, and understandably so. Like, wh- wh- what, who do you think you are? You want me just to say yes? I don't even know what you're going to ask? Are you crazy? But he doesn't do that. Instead, he asks them a question. What do you want me to do for you? I love that response. I love the fact that he didn't just drop the hammer on them. He didn't just come down on them, even though, again, it would have been justified. Instead, he asks a question to tease out what was in their hearts. He asks a question in order to reveal and expose what was in the hearts of his disciples. And they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. As they approached Jerusalem, James and John, as well as the other disciples, probably had a vision of how things were going to go down. You see, they had already witnessed Jesus perform extraordinary miracles. They had seen his power on display. They heard his teaching, which was profound. They had seen the crowds gather en masse to hear him. They had even come to believe that he was, in fact, the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed king. And so as they approached Jerusalem, they believed they were not merely going to ascend the hill up to the city. They believed that Jesus was going to ascend to his throne. And as Jesus ascended to his throne, they wanted to be there right next to him. It was not enough for them to be one of the 12 disciples. It wasn't enough to be in the top 12, which is pretty good. No, they wanted to be right there next to him so that he received his glory. They too would receive some glory. Sitting at his right hand and his left hand would give the idea to other people that they were really important people. We want you to elevate us. We want people to recognize that we're important. We want to get as much of your glory as possible. They wanted to preemptively secure the places of honor next to the king before they got to Jerusalem. James and John wanted glory and fame and recognition for themselves. As I mentioned before, Jesus had tried to impress upon the twelve the cost of following him. In chapter 8, he taught the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In chapter 9, he told them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. But James and John had seemingly brushed aside that teaching and were thinking only of the rewards. James Edwards said, They are quick to claim the benefits of God's kingdom, but slow to hear the costs of participating in it. Their request was self-serving, contrary to what Jesus taught, and offensive to the other ten disciples. It's easy to shake our heads and think, Wow, these guys missed it. Boy, do they look foolish. But brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded of what Jesus taught just as much as they did. We need the teachings of Jesus to be impressed upon our hearts 
time and time again. We need to be willing to ask ourselves the tough questions. How much do we desire to be honored and elevated? How much do we desire to be recognized and respected by others? You see, the temptation to seek glory for ourselves is a very real temptation that we all face. The temptation to seek the praise of man and be held in high esteem by others is a temptation we will all face. And we need to wage war against this temptation. We need to pray what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 115, where he said, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. We do not desire to receive glory for ourselves, but we want you to receive all of the glory. That should be the cry and desire of our hearts. We are tempted to take some glory for ourselves. Maybe not all of it. We still want Jesus to be king, but we want to get some of his glory right next to him. That temptation to receive the praise of man, to be held in high honor and and high regard, to get glory for ourselves will always be there, but we need to put it to death, and instead we need to have the attitude of not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to you. Bring glory to your name. When the disciples made that request, Jesus responded to them by telling them, you really don't know what you are asking. Then he asked them a question that they probably did not understand. He said, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And when he asked this question, he was referring to the suffering he was about to undergo. In the Old Testament, we see the imagery of the cup being poured out as something that God is giving to someone. Occasionally it refers to God's blessing being poured out, but more often it refers to God's wrath being poured out. So in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17, for example, we read, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord of the uh, hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. So we see this imagery of the cup being poured out, drinking from this cup. Being a description of God's wrath being poured out on a person. And the imagery of baptism, too, spoke of Jesus' death. So Jesus was saying, can you drink of this cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with this baptism? And the question that Jesus asked required a negative response. The answer, the correct answer would be, no. No, they could not. And the reason being is that Jesus, when he was going to the cross, was going to experience the wrath of God being poured out on him for the sins of his people. Jesus, though he was innocent, was going to the cross to be punished as though he were guilty as a substitute for his people. We refer to this as substitutionary atonement. Jesus went to the cross as our substitute, to be punished in our place in order to make atonement for our sins. God's wrath was going to be poured out on him in a unique way. 
But James and John did not understand this, and therefore they unwittingly answered, We are able. At this point, you might think Jesus would say, No, you're totally wrong. You don't understand. Surprisingly, though, Jesus seems to concede, at least to some degree, that they were right. He said, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. You see, in one sense, the answer to his original question of can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with my baptism was no and yes. In one sense, it was no because Jesus' death was unique. His suffering and death was unique in the sense that he absorbed the wrath of God for the sins of God's people. But in another sense, because they were following Jesus and because they would follow the one who suffered and died, the disciples too would suffer and die. They too would experience suffering and death as Jesus experienced suffering and death. So no, they could not drink the cup that Jesus that Jesus drank in the sense that they could not absorb the wrath of God for the sins of others. They could not serve as a substitute to take the penalty for the sins of other people. But yes, they could experience the cup and the baptism, the, the suffering and the death that Jesus experienced in the sense that they too would suffer because they were followers of Jesus and because they proclaimed the gospel. But in regard to their original request to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus, he told them that the decision was in the hands of the Father. He left it at that. Now, when the other ten heard about the request James and John made, they became angry. But it was not righteous anger. They were not angry because of some injustice that had been done to someone else. They were not angry in the way that God becomes angry. When God becomes angry at sin and injustice. No, they were angry because these guys were trying to get a leg up on them. These guys were making a a play for a position that they wanted. And we know their, their motivation was wrong because of what Jesus taught them in order to bring correction. Jesus had to once again show them how their desires were contrary to the true nature of discipleship. He said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He said, like, Look, in the world, you know how the world seeks power and uses power. You know that in the world, people desire power and they want to be seen as having power and they like lording their power over other people. Power is an idol in the world. People lust after power and like to wield power for their own purposes and like to make sure that people underneath them know that they have power over them. Then Jesus told his disciples, but you are not to fall into that pattern. You are not to pursue what the world pursues. Instead, you are to pursue something entirely different. He said, but it shall, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. In the kingdom of God, greatness is defined in a way that is contrary to the world. Greatness involves becoming a servant. And the word that is used for servant there referred to someone who would wait tables. You are not to be the person who's sitting at the table having people serve you as though you're so important. 
You're to be the one waiting tables, treating others as though they are important. You are to take on the role of a servant so that you can serve others. And he said, you must be a slave of all. And that word slave speaks to being subservient to others. You must not try to seek to be above others. Instead, you must seek to be subservient to others. You must actively seek to elevate people as more important than you. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, if you want true greatness, you must be a servant and a slave to all. We are talking about radical humility. We are talking about radical humility that the world does not understand and will not embrace. The world might understand that humility is a good virtue, but not to this degree, not to this extent. Then Jesus provided them with the reason that they were to become servants and slaves. He wasn't simply trying to provide them with a new and distinct ethic by which they should live. No, he was teaching them the way of the Lord. He was teaching them the way of the Savior. He was teaching them the way of the Messiah. If they wanted to follow him, if they wanted to walk in his ways, if they truly wanted to be disciples of Jesus, then they, it was necessary for them to become servants and slaves of all. In the Old Testament, there are several teachings which provided different pictures describing the one who would come. For example, in the book of Daniel, we read about the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, we read, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Here in Daniel, one who is described as the son of man is presented before the one true and living God and he's given dominion and glory and power and authority. He's given all this. Why? So that all peoples will serve him. The Son of Man is described as a powerful and glorious king who rules over everyone and who commands the worship and service of all peoples. The Son of Man is described in glorious and powerful language. We also read about the one who would come in the book of Isaiah. For example, in Isaiah 53, we read about the suffering servant. Listen to verses 3 through 6 where we read, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the passage goes on. The one described here is referred to as the suffering servant. One who was despised, who was so hideous that men hide their faces from him. He was despised, he was rejected, he was not honored, he was not held in high esteem. He was punished for the sins of others. We have these contrasting ideas, or at least seemingly contrasting ideas. On the one hand, we have the Son of Man who is given a kingdom, who is given dominion, who is given power and glory and honor so that all peoples will serve and worship Him, the glorious one. And on the other hand, He's described as someone so hideous, people don't even want to look at Him. He's described as one who suffers, one who is being punished, not served and honored and worshipped, but who's being punished for the sins of others. How do we reconcile these ideas about the one who would come? How could he be both the Son of Man described in Daniel 7 and the suffering servant described in Isaiah 53? What we see in our passage is that both of these realities come together in the person of Jesus. He said, for even the Son of Man which was likely a reference to Daniel 7. For even the Son of Man, the glorious one, who has dominion and power, who will be honored and served by all peoples, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the glorious one, the most glorious one, who will have power and authority, a kingdom who will be worshipped and served by all peoples, even that one came not to be served, but to serve and to give up his life as a ransom for many to purchase people from slavery and death. Here we have the heart of the gospel. God made us. He made all things. He made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. He made man, male and female, in his image, to know him, to love him, to obey him, to enjoy him, to glorify him. He created us for this extraordinary purpose, this extraordinary and glorious purpose whereby we get to enjoy this relationship with him, this perfect relationship with him that comes with love and joy and peace. He created us for this wonderful purpose, yet we have all sinned against him. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all have rejected him as our king through our sinful disobedience. Meaning, we all deserve hell. If the Lord gave us what we deserved, we would all get hell. But God in his love and his mercy and his kindness has provided a way for us to escape the wrath and the judgment that we deserve. And he did so by, provi by providing Jesus, the son of man, the suffering servant, as a substitute for us, taking the punishment we deserve in our place so that we will not be punished, but instead receive the forgiveness of our sins so that we will be reconciled to God the Father so that our relationship with him will be completely restored and we can enjoy all the benefits and privileges and blessings that come 
with it. The good news is that everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Jesus will be saved and restored to God, our Father, who is a loving Father. If you're not a Christian, we are glad you're here. Our greatest hope and desire for you is that you will believe in Jesus. You will repent of your sins and believe in Jesus and be saved. That is our greatest our hope and desire and prayer for you. If you're not a Christian, let today be the day of salvation. Repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, and be saved. Know the love of your Father. If you are a Christian, do you see that you have the greatest motivation of all to humble yourself and serve others? We are the beneficiaries of the one who humbled himself immeasurably more than we ever will. We are the beneficiaries of the one who served to an extent that we never will. We are the beneficiaries of the one who laid down his life for us in service to us. We are saved because he was willing to humble himself and serve us. What greater motivation do we need to humble ourselves and to serve others? James Edwards wrote, This model of ministry cannot come from the secular order, but only from the unique way of Jesus, which defies the logic of this world and its fascination with dominance, control, yields, results, and outcomes. The key to the model, both incarnated and commanded by Jesus, is in the verbs to serve and give. Listen to this. He goes on to say, the reason why a servant is the most preeminent position in the kingdom of God is that the sole function of a servant is to give, and giving is the essence of God. Oh, isn't that beautiful? The reason that a servant is the preeminent position in the kingdom of God is because a servant gives and giving reflects the essence of God, his character and his nature. When we humble ourselves, when we become servants, we are reflecting the glorious character and nature of our God. The passage This passage teaches us profound truth about what Jesus has done for us and what it means to follow him. Jesus commands us to humble ourselves and serve others as his followers because he came into the world to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, including us. This theme is repeated in the Gospels so that it will be impressed upon our hearts. It's central to our identity as followers of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus means you humble yourself and become a servant to all. This theme is not only repeated in the Gospels, it's also repeated in the rest of the New Testament. The reason that it is significant in the rest of the New Testament is because, as I said, the application of this teaching is central to our identity as followers of Jesus, but it's also vital to the health of every local church. If we want to be a follower of Jesus, we will humble ourselves and be a servant to all. If we care about the health of our local church, we will humble ourselves and be a servant to all. In his letter to the church at Philippi, Paul wrote in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul was urging the church in Philippi to take on the mind of Christ, to humble themselves, to be servants, to consider the interests of others above their own interests. He's saying, have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You do not have this mindset apart from Christ Jesus, but in Christ Jesus, you are given this mindset. You are given the, the power to humble yourself, to be a servant to others. He's urging them, walk in this. Walk in this mindset which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do this for the sake of your church. In Romans 15, verses 1 through 3, he said, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We have an obligation not to please ourselves. He went on to say, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Why? For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. We are called to live in such a way that we try to please others to build them up, not please ourselves. Why? Because we have a Savior who did that for us. Jesus did that for us. We have a Savior who humbled himself in an extraordinary way. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant, though he is, in fact, the Son of Man, the glorious one, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one to whom all glory and honor truly belongs. Though that is true, he humbled himself for our sake and became a servant and became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. He came to serve and give himself up to ransom us and now he calls us to walk in his ways. He calls us to humble ourselves as he humbled himself. He calls us to serve others as he served others. And brothers and sisters, as we do this, as we pursue humility, as we pursue becoming servants, we will bring glory to Christ Jesus as we put his beautiful character and nature on display. The challenge for us is how can we become more, how can we grow in humility? How can we grow in servitude? How can we apply this to our hearts and lives here and now? How is the Lord calling you to humble yourself and to be a servant to others? It's easy to be a servant towards people who are like you, to people who you, who, who you like, people who are nice to you. But how is the Lord calling you to humble yourself and be a servant in a way that the world cannot do? In a way that's truly contrary to the world? How is he calling you to do this? Let's pursue this together through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pursue this together that we might become more like Jesus, that we might glorify him, and that we might be a faithful witness in our community and beyond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you sent Jesus into the world 
Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to humble yourself, become a servant, die on the cross, that you might ransom us. We rejoice in you, we thank you, we are grateful, and we pray that we will be people who grow in humility. We pray that we will be true servants of all. Please help us to become more like Jesus, we pray. We humbly ask this of you. We do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to continue our time of worship together, and we are going to do so through singing God's praises. And during God's praises, we're also going to take communion. If you are a Christian, if you are trusting in Christ for your salvation, then we invite you to take communion during our time of singing when you are ready. Uh, communion is for those who are trusting in Christ for their salvation because it is a demonstration of our faith. It's a visible demonstration that we are trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for our salvation. We are acknowledging that we cannot contribute to our salvation. We cannot earn God's favor. We cannot earn our salvation. But Christ earned it for us through his death on the cross. His body was broken. His blood was shed. So when we take communion, we are demonstrating that we are trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. So if you're a Christian, we invite you to take communion. We always encourage you to examine your heart first. We encourage you to examine your heart before taking communion so that we do not take communion in an unworthy manner. It could be the case that the Lord would have you refrain from taking communion today so that you might pursue repentance in a particular way. Or maybe that he would have you pursue reconciliation with a brother or sister in Christ. If he's calling you to do that, that's okay. There's nothing shameful about that. It's just important that you respond to the Lord in obedience. So during our time of singing, you can come and take communion at the tables in the front. You can grab a bread and a juice and take that back to your seat. With that, let's stand and continue to worship the Lord together. <laughs>